0: Well, we started this sermon series on the model of prayer from Matthew 6, verses 5 to 15, asking why we don't pray. We acknowledge the importance of prayer. We acknowledge the privilege of prayer. We acknowledge the power of prayer. But often we still do not pray. I talked about how faithful Christians, people who are, are dealing with, with heart issues like unrepentant sin, and laziness, and selfishness, and doubt, and misplaced priorities, and so on, people who are, are really dealing with these issues often still struggle to pray. I explained that one major reason that many Christians don't pray is that they don't know how to pray. They've never been taught to pray. I was discipled by faithful men. I went to a lot of prayer meetings over the years. But no one ever taught me how to pray. Now, I'm not being critical with this. They, They probably weren't taught either. Another reason why many Christians don't pray is that they get bored with praying the same old things in the same old way. They run out of things to pray about. Well, if that's you, you're not alone. Many faithful saints have studied with, struggle with exactly the same thing. We talked about the testimony of, of George Muller, that, that faithful man of God who even uh, struggled himself, and sometimes knowing what to pray, or found sometimes his, his prayers were, were cold and dull. Well, the answer to both problems, the the problem of, of not knowing how to pray and of not knowing what to pray, is obvious. But once you see it, it's obvious. It's so obvious that you wonder why you never thought of doing it before. This answer has been discovered by many faithful leaders throughout church history. Early church fathers like Irenaeus and Tertullian, reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin, Puritans like Martin Henry or Matthew Henry rather, and, and, and Thomas Watson, 19th century pastors like Andrew Murray and Robert Murray McShane, modern pastors like John MacArthur and John Piper. They all discovered this answer. The answer, of course, as we've seen over the past ten weeks, is praying through Scripture. It's praying through Scripture. By praying through Scripture, you know how to pray because God's Word guides you. (coughs) And by praying through Scripture, you know what to pray because God's Word tells you. And one of the best ways to learn to pray through Scripture is to pray through the model prayer that we've been discussing for the last 10 weeks. Jesus knew that his disciples, whether those first disciples or even the disciples sitting in this very room, he knew that, that we, all of his disciples would need to know how to pray. So he laid out a model prayer for us in Matthew chapter six, specifically the prayer in verses nine to 13 and, and the similar Luke eleven two two to four. And again, Jesus did not intend these prayers to be prayed verbatim, but as a framework, as a pattern to follow in order to guide and direct our prayers. That's why Jesus did not say, pray this, but pray like this. He began with an initial address, our Father, and then six petitions, and we, we walked through them all. Your name, your kingdom, your will, Notice the pronouns, and the shift to the personal pronoun, our bread, our forgiveness, and our protection. We're briefly going to outline what we learned through this series, and at the end I'm going to give an opportunity for people to give testimony of some of the things that God has taught As as we've studied this prayer together things either they've they've learned and and incorporated into their own prayer life, or or even answers to prayer. We we first spent a week looking at the introduction to to the prayer in in verses 5 to 9a, where Jesus contrasted true prayer with with the, the prayers of those who were more concerned about what others thought. And true prayer... With, with the pe- people who just said the same thing over and over again. Then we went into the prayer proper. And, in verse 9b, the address, Our Father. The focus there is, is on the relationship that we have with Almighty God. First we, we see in the, in the, his, the, the appellation, Father, we see His imminent. But it also expresses God's transcendence God's otherness, but in dealing with with who God is as our Father, we we understand that we have been adopted into His family. It doesn't cost us anything, but it cost God dearly. It cost the Father the life of His Son. It cost the Son His life. The Father poured out His wrath On his son so that we can call him father. You need to let go of your 21st century presuppositions of fatherhood and and see that that God, in in using this this term, is is, is showing us that, that fathers are to be honored and God is to be honored as our father. You also need to let go of your own personal biases of fatherhood and let God's word guide your thinking. God is a faithful Father. He will never let you down or do anything other than that which is best for you. This is also not just an individual prayer. This This is corporate. It's not just my Father, but our Father. If God is your Father, you have brothers, you have sisters, for whom you are also to pray. So as you pray, remember that God is your Father. Thank Him for the unsurpassed privilege of being adopted into His family. Speak to Him on behalf of your Christian family and of your loved ones. Trust Him that He is able and will always do what is best. Then the first petition we find in, in Matthew 6, 9, part C, your name talked about how God's name is, is God's essence. It's a reflection of who He is. It is how He revealed Himself to us in His Word. And we looked at several of the names of God in the Bible. El Shaddai, Elo-a, Elo-am, Eloam, Elohim, and but the highest name for God in the Scriptures is Yahweh, which means I am. And the Lord Jesus often referred to himself in this way. You see it especially in, in John's gospel account where, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. And before Abraham was, I am. This was very intentional. Jesus was referring to himself as Yahweh. To hallow means to set apart or to make Holy. that God is already holy, and so we can't make Him more holy than He is. Holiness is His preeminent attribute. All of His attributes are holy. So to hallow God's name means to regard God as holy. It means to set Him apart. When we hallow God's name, we're we're not just hallowing a, a word. It means to honor and to hallow Him. In praying this petition, you are seeking that God will be exalted in your thoughts, in your words, in your actions, and in your prayers. Hallowing God's name is your most important duty. But you can't do it. So you go to God asking for help, that He would help you to hallow His name. Now this petition it is the first in, in, the, in the prayer because all prayer falls under this great head. In fact, all of life falls under this great head. So as you pray for God's name to be hallowed, consider who God is and praise him. Consider your failure to send him apart as holy and ask him to help you. The second petition in Matthew six ten a your kingdom, God's kingdom is one of the most prominent themes in the Scriptures. It refers to to God's rule and God's reign. And God's kingdom is at war with the kingdom of darkness. That's, That's been the case ever since man fell in the garden, and it will be until Christ returns. God's kingdom was inaugurated in the incarnation of Christ, but will be fulfilled at His return. We talked about five ways that we see God's kingdom revealed in the scriptures. In creation. In Christians. In the church. In conversion. And in the consummation. Five ways that you see God's kingdom in the scriptures. In creation, we, we see that the kingdom has, has already come as God already providentially rules over all. And Christians, that's, that's you and me, it's a prayer that God's kingdom would be advanced in us, that, that our lives will increasingly be sanctified. God's brain would expand in our own hearts. In the church, it's a, it's a prayer for increased unity in Christ, not just in doctrine, as, as important that is, but, but in love and, and mutual submission and selfless service in this local church, but also in all true churches, <coughs> in conversions. We pray for the advance of the gospel around the world. We pray for workers to be sent into the harvest. We pray that we ourselves would be faithful in evangelism. But when was the last time you, you shared the gospel with somebody? You need to pray. Our kingdom, your kingdom, and I come. In the consummation. This is the kingdom of, of glory. We, we pray for the return of Christ. We pray, come, Lord Jesus. So as you pray for God's kingdom to come, consider these ways that God's kingdom is advanced. And ask the Lord to work in you and through you and around you. Ask Jesus to save his elect and ask Jesus to return. And the next petition, the third petition, in Matthew six ten b it's your will. We saw that there are two aspects of of God's will, God's secret will and God's revealed will. God's secret will includes God's providential governance of all things. And it's secret because even though we see in God's word that He is indeed sovereign over everything, we don't know what God's plans are in this regard. So, So to us it remains a secret. God's revealed will, on the other hand, includes two things. God's preceptive will, which refers to His commandments, and God's characteristic will, which is His his kind inclinations according to His attributes. So as you pray for God's providential will, you're acknowledging God's total sovereignty, and you're asking the Lord to help you to submit to His rule in your life. And that whatever happens, you will trust him. You'll seek to reflect him and glorify him. As you pray for God's preceptive, precept, preceptive will, you are praying that God's you're praying that your will, will will line up with God's will. You're praying that you will be obedient to what God commands you to do that you'll be conformed to His His will, and that those around you will be conformed to His will. And then as you pray for God's characteristic will, you're you're praying that God would be merciful on unbelievers, for granting them repentance in line with with His glorious attributes. The fourth petition in in Matthew 6.11 is is our bread, and notice that it's it's just here that, that we're shifting from focusing directly on God His glory to ourselves and to our needs. And so this, this, this first petition, even, even this first petition, the second half, is, begins to focus first on our natural, our material needs, the things that, that we need physically to survive. But even in these last three, we're still really focused ultimately on God and His glory, as we'll see. So first, when we pray according to the model prayer, we're we're learning to have the right priorities in prayer. We're we're learning not to just go to God with a shopping list of the things that we need, but we're first seeking to to exalt Him, to seek the advance of His kingdom and and His will in our lives and in the, the circumstances that we face. So we're learning to have the right priorities, but we're, we're really seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and, and trusting that everything that we need will be added to us. Matthew 6, So this petition is, is really an acknowledgement that every good thing that you receive comes to you from the hand of your loving, heavenly Father. In our culture of, of self-reliance, we, we often... I mean, we don't often think to ask God for our material needs, that is, until there's a problem. We, we don't generally think to, to ask for, for food on our table until we're hungry. I don't think in our culture many of us are really ever going to experience true hunger. But part of, of this prayer for, uh, for God to provide for our physical needs also includes health. You don't generally think to, to pray for God to, to, to keep you healthy until you are unhealthy. Until there's, there's a, a, a scary diagnosis in your life or the, the lives of, of somebody around you. So this, this prayer teaches us that we are ultimately and, and completely reliant on God. This is a prayer, again, to provide for our material needs, and not in general, not just just food, but it also includes health. (coughs) And it's really to be a daily prayer. You're you're asking God to give you enough for today. Not for for a super abundance, but for enough. You're asking, again, not just for yourself individually, but, but for your brothers and sisters as well, for our daily bread. By praying in this way, your, your Father is drawing you into a, an intimate relationship with Him. Five times in, in this passage, Jesus teaches that the giver is the Father. And so He's teaching us not, not to seek the, the, the gift, but the giver. He wants you to seek Him. And I believe that's, that's one of the reasons why God designed us to, to need daily food. You don't just eat once a year, something that that tastes like styrofoam, and and then be done with it. But you need to eat every day, and so so as you (coughs) put that food on your table, it's a reminder of who God is, and you as a creature are being dependent on Him. So as you pray for your daily bread, you're, you're considering your present needs and the needs of those around you, and you are going to your Heavenly Father in humble, daily reliance. The fifth petition we see in Matthew 6:12 and also in verses 14 and 15 is for our forgiveness. So now we move on from our physical needs to our spiritual needs. Now you may feel your physical needs more acutely, but your greatest need is your need of forgiveness. You need to be forgiven by God, and you need God to help you to forgive others. If you're a Christian, you've been forgiven an insurmountable death. but your debt has been paid by Jesus Christ through His perfect life and His atoning death. But you still need daily forgiveness even as you still need daily bread because you still continue to sin every day. But for Christians, this this prayer for forgiveness is, is not a prayer about salvation. Let me say this again. Christian, all of your sins have been forgiven through Jesus Christ. So the prayer for forgiveness, for daily forgiveness, is not a prayer for salvation. But it's about your your experience of your relationship with God. As you deal with your sins daily before Him, you're nurturing your relationship with Him. You're, You're protecting and promoting intimacy with Him. So you ask for his forgiveness daily. And then Jesus says, even as we have forgiven our debtors. So this is tied to our forgiveness of other people. Thomas Watson warned that our forgiving others is not a cause of God forgiving us, but is a condition without which God will not forgive us. Because forgiven people are forgiving people, and unforgiving people are unforgiven people. If you are a Christian, you will forgive. If you do not forgive, you are demonstrating that you are not truly a Christian. Now we know that we all struggle with this. And we can struggle with this for some time. But for those who have been forgiven by Jesus Christ's atoning death, that all their sins laid on his account. The same people, out of the, the riches of the forgiveness that we have received, out of those riches, we gladly forgive other people. We don't hold on to their offenses that they commit against us. Now in some cases, people are going to sin against you again, so you need to forgive them again. But in other cases, we take back the forgiveness that we had once granted. So we can sometimes need to forgive people for the same offense again and again and again. Our forgiveness of others is unconditional. We don't wait for others to seek forgiveness. We take the initiative in seeking to forgive them. This is hard. I don't know about you, but one of the hardest things that I've ever had to do was to forgive people who hurt me, but don't think that they've done anything wrong. Apart from God's grace, I can't do that. I've tried. I can't. But in seeking to forgive others, it it causes me to fall again on on God's mercy and God's grace, asking Him for forgiveness for my failure again to forgive others. But, but asking Him for the strength to be able to forgive. And then what does God do when you pray that? God helps you to forgive others. No people here have testified of, of the strength that God has given them to forgive others who have sinned against them grievously. As one who has been forgiven, you have now been freed to forgive others. So as you pray daily for forgiveness, you're reflecting on the, on the past day or past days. Of, of, of what you have done, and, and asking the Lord to reveal your sin, and you're asking Him to grant you repentance. You're asking Him to, to help you to overcome that, to turn away from that sin, and you're asking Him to forgive you for it. But you're also interceding for those around you, asking that they also would be forgiven, asking them to, to repent and to turn away from their sin. And also, as you pray daily for forgiveness, you're asking the Lord to help you to forgive those who have sinned against you. And the final petition, Matthew 6, 13, is a prayer for our protection. We're praying here, obviously, that the Lord would, would protect us. Like food and forgiveness are daily needs, protection is a daily need as well. We know that God does, does not ever entice us to sin, so when Jesus uses the word temptation here. He's referring to to testing or trial. When he says lead us not into temptation, he's he's not talking about God enticing us into sin. He's he's telling us that that we need to um, to pray that that we would never be uh, tested so severely that we'll fall into sin. You need to understand that you have three enemies. The world the flesh, and the devil. You need to know your enemies, and you need to know your weaknesses. Praying specifically and intentionally, fighting against each one in the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to flee from every temptation, and from every tempting situation. If you've fallen before in a specific area, and you go back to that again, you're being foolish. You're making provision for the flesh. So when you you pray this for protection, you're you're praying specifically that the Lord will keep you from all forms of evil, especially from the evil one, from Satan, the deceiver, who who comes to you as a tempter, and then when you fall, he becomes your accuser. As you pray for your God not to lead you into temptation, you are thinking about the coming day and, and what trials or tests are likely to come the day, and and you're you're asking for strength to to and wisdom to avoid those, and you're also seeking wisdom to to avoid pitfalls that might blindside you. So as you, as you pray for deliverance from evil, you're you're considering the, the evil around you, ways you fallen before and, and, and you're asking for help to overcome, you're, you're considering evil people who are like, you're likely to encounter through the day and asking the Lord to protect you from their wickedness, from their influence. You're considering the devil and asking the Lord to protect you from his schemes. So that's really the, the model prayer, six petitions that, that really encompass all of life our physical life and our, our spiritual life and, and our relationship with God and what we should be seeking ultimately for Him and for His glory, to live lives for Him and His glory. So this model really provides a framework for your prayer. As I said from the outset, not, not all prayer needs to be lockstep in this format according to this pattern, but this model of prayer does help you to know what to pray and how to pray. Helps you to maintain the right priorities in prayer. And it also serves as an introduction to, to help you to, to see that the practice of praying through Scripture, of taking a, a principle that is presented in a particular passage and meditating on the meaning, and then praying it back to God. And so, so doing it, praying in this way, um, helps you to, to not, not just your prayer life, but it also helps your Bible study, is as you really begin to, con- to consider, to think about what God's Word is, is teaching and then communicating back to God. So many have testified of the way that, that praying in this way, it, it, praying through Scripture, has really transformed their prayer life, making that their prayers come alive. Scriptures are a limitless oil field to fuel your prayer life. If you ever run out of things to pray, all you have to do is turn the page. As you get into praying through Scripture, uh, after the the model prayer, the Psalms are really the the next place that I would recommend that you go. The Psalms have been described as the the prayer book of God's people. Consider the life of David, who, who wrote at least half of the Psalms. David went through some sweet times. He also he also went through some dark times. His words can give voice to our joy, and his, his, voice, his, his words can give voice to our to our tears as well. The Psalms reveal how a man after God's own heart prayed during rejoicing and during despair, during victory and during defeat. And living and walking in righteousness and in guilt. So through the Psalms we see how a godly man, and a godly woman, ought to respond to the various circumstances and situations of life. Whatever circumstance you face, there's a psalm for that. Let's just look at a few. Turn, if you will, in your Bible to Psalm chapter eight, to Psalms eight, to Psalms eight. This is known as a a psalm of praise. Praising God's attributes, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so in praying through this, you would, you, would, you would, just like we've been doing, you would think about God's attributes that are revealed in his name. And praise him individually for these things. You set your glory above the heavens and so you can just describe God's glory in, in his creation. And so on as you as he goes down verse 3, when I look at your heavens, at the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you've set in place. Because I was thinking that this, this morning, as I was looking at, at the moon as the as the moon was setting early this morning, it was, it was huge, it was beautiful. You can praise God for, for creating the moon and for sending it in, in place. So so a psalm like like Psalm 8. It gives you an opportunity and it gives you a way to, to guide you to seek to glorify God. Or look at Psalm 42. This is known as a psalm of lament. It's a psalm of lament as, as David, uh, sort of sons of Korah, um, are crying out to God in the, in the midst of, of trial and, and turmoil. It says, The deer pants for a flowing stream. Soul pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? A- have you ever hungered for God that way? That, that describes that a deer is being chased by hunters and is, 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 is dying of thirst. But this deer wants God more or the the, the, the the psalmist wants God more than the deer pants for water. My tears have been my food day and night. While they say continually, Where's my God? Crying and, and the and the people who are, are mocking you. And mocking your God. You can pray this. You can pray the concepts of, of this psalm and, and let your let your, your tears flow before God. In verse 5, you you preach to God, to your own soul. Why are you cast down O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. My salvation and my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you. And so it's preaching to yourself and praying to God that that you would be able to, to reach out to Him and that you would again praise His name. So the Psalms can give voice to your lament as you pray it back to God. Or turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is, is a prayer of repentance. We've talked about this before, but but where, where when David is is approached by the prophet Nathan after David sinned with Bathsheba, and this psalm this is David's prayer of repentance. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So so whatever sin it is that you need to repent of, you you go to God praying this psalm. Saying, God, wash me thoroughly from, from this sin. Ex- ex- talk to God about what that sin specifically is. Ask His forgiveness. Ask for His cleansing. And it just, I, I really, if you are, if you are, Feeling guilty before God. You, you need to make Psalm 51 a part of your prayer vocabulary. And one final one Psalm 100 is a, is a psalm of thanksgiving. Psalm 100 Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Then in verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to God. Bless his, bless his name. But the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, his faithfulness to all generations. And so as you, as you pray this song, you're thinking about all the things that you need to be thankful for, for God, and asking that forgiveness to, to well up in your heart and overflow in praise to him. A few examples of, of how you can, can use the Psalms to, to pray the Scriptures, to pray God's Word back to God. It's not just the Psalms, but the Epistles, the Gospels they become your own as you adopt them into your prayer life. And I'm excited to think about what will happen in the life of this church as, as we begin to grow in prayer, as we grab hold of the practice of praying through the Scriptures. We do this on on Saturday mornings when the the men come together to pray. This is our our practice. We we pray through the scriptures together. And if you want to to learn how to do this, it's a great opportunity to come out and to practice. So praying through the scripture makes makes prayer a two-way conversation. God speaks to you in His Word, and you speak His Word back to Him in prayer. You're praying God's Word back to God.